it's, it's, I'm going to meander a little bit, but we're going to trust the Holy Spirit that he's leading for his purposes here tonight. The first miracle Jesus did, most of you are very familiar with this story, Jesus turning the water into wine at the wedding. And if you know the story, Jesus and the disciples came upon the wedding there in Cana, and uh, his, the wedding party is well underway. And his mother comes up to him and says, son, they've run out of wine. And he says, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And Jesus is making a prophetic statement that the true wine, the wine of the Holy Spirit, will not be released until after his crucifixion, resurrection, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But his mother had the gift of spiritual nagging. (laughs) Say spiritual nagging. We're all called to... Yeah, people are leaving this meeting by the droves. <laughs> but uh, uh, his mother uh, wasn't going to back off. And she said to uh, the servants there, do whatever he tells you to do. And uh, he said, okay, fill these six ceremonial stone washing pots that they had for weddings. Uh, fill them with water. And fill them to the very brim, which is symbolic of our lives being filled with the living waters of the Holy Spirit. And when your lives are filled with the Holy Spirit, that's the place where miracles begin to happen. And uh, you know the story that he told the steward or the servant to dip, or dip their pitchers in and carry it to where the steward, the man running the wedding, was. And it was probably a large house, you know, if you watched the first season of The Chosen. They had a powerful uh, illustration of this in one of the episodes. But so they dipped their pitchers in, and it's an interesting thing about miracles that oftentimes miracles happen right when we first pray for the situation or the person, but quite often they don't. The water was not turned to wine when they first dipped the pitchers in, but as they were obedient to the Lord and walked down those hallways or through the rooms and got to the steward was, a transformation took place. And they gave it to the steward, and he tasted and said, Wow, usually people serve the best wine first. And by the way, each of those six ceremonial stone washing pots could hold between 20 and 30 gallons. So you had somewhere between... 120 and 180 gallons of wine. That's so much wine, everybody would have had to take an Uber to go home. You know, this is, but anyway, I don't know what type of church we're in here, so I won't go any further with that. But he drank, he tasted the wine, and he said, wow, this is unusual. Usually people serve the good wine first, because after there's been drinking of wine, people lose their discernment, and you can bring out the cheap stuff, the ripple, the T-bird, you know. Uh, but he said, you have saved the best for last. Actually, in the original language and in the better translation of the Bible, that's not what it says. What Jesus actually said was, you have saved the best for now. And I understand this is a subtle distinction, but it's a very important distinction because if we're constantly thinking God's best, God's breakthroughs, God's deliverance, God's healing, God's promotion is just somewhere down the road, guess what? You're never going to get there. 
There's only one point in time that you can live filled with the Holy Spirit, conscious of the Holy Spirit, and that is right now. And God is after a now people. And we understand there's a number of promises in the Bible that will not be fulfilled until either Jesus returns or you're taken up to heaven, whichever comes first. But there are many, many passages in the Bible that I think we relegate for the sweet by and by, but God intends them for the dirty now and now. If you remember the story of uh, John 11, I spoke into this a little bit Friday night. Jesus was very good friends with Martha and Mary and their brother Lazarus, and they sent word to Jesus, come quickly, Lazarus whom you love is dying. And Jesus didn't go there quickly. He waited several days, and by the time he got there, Lazarus had been dead now several days. And both Martha and Mary came out separately to Jesus, and although they loved Jesus deeply, they both rebuked him because they couldn't understand why he had delayed. He's going all throughout Israel healing everybody. Why couldn't he come to pray for the brother, his good friend Lazarus? But when Martha came out and rebuked him and said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, he said, Martha, whoever believes in me shall not die but have eternal life. And she said, yes, I believe you're the Messiah. But we read a few verses later, after Jesus' encounter with her sister Mary, he goes and stands before the tomb, and he said, roll away the stone. And as I related Friday night, Martha said, well, by now the body's going to be stinking. He's been dead for four days. But Jesus said to Martha, didn't I say to you, if you believed, you would see the glory of God? You see, she had taken the very words Jesus had said to her just an hour or so earlier and relegated for someday, yes, will enter into eternal life. Now, the resurrection from, from the dead was still to come in the life of Lazarus, but nevertheless, he experienced a bit of God's resurrection power that day when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And even with those grave clothes walked uh, upon his head, he walked out of that cave fully alive. And there is so much that God wants to do right now, today. And if we're constantly waiting for the breakthrough to tomorrow, it's never going to happen because you never get to tomorrow. When you get to tomorrow, it's still going to be today, isn't it? Don't think about that too long. And, of course, there's things like a university degree or working towards a certain goal that we get to that goal and things begin to happen because we've achieved that goal. We understand that. But today is the day to seek first the kingdom of God on earth as in heaven. And I believe that you as a church are closer than ever to some incredible breakthroughs. And I want you, if you would, just turn for a moment in your Bible to... Uh, Matt, uh, my gosh, where are we at here? Give me one second. Uh, turn to John chapter 14. John 14 is the, the great chapter where Jesus said in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But Philip then said, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough. Jesus said in verse 9, Have I been so long with you, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, 
but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father's in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, verse 12, and we know that whenever Jesus said truly, truly, he was saying, make sure you get this point. This is a key fundamental point that you have to understand and have to implement into your life. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever, say whoever, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these do will he do because I am going to the Father. I don't necessarily, I don't believe that necessarily means greater works than Jesus actually did, but a continuation as far as volume, as far as the quantity, because we are the body of Christ here on earth, but Jesus is at the right hand of the Father now. But this is a now promise to the people of God. And when we read about the extraordinary things that happened, for example, in the book of Acts in the early days church, the healings and miracles, the massive waves of evangelism that happened in Ephesus. Ephesus was such a completely pagan city, but yet after Paul went there, a massive revival broke through that changed the very fabric of that society. They believed that by the time persecution began against the early days church in Jerusalem, over a third of the whole city had come to Christ Jesus. I mean, if they say that 10% is the tipping point, so what is 30%? And the, this word that's used, particularly in the Gospel of John, in a few passages that's used here in John, 10, uh, John 14, works, it literally means works of power. Now, I'm going to tell you a story, and I actually, I, I very seldom tell this story because uh, sometimes when I'm with conferences and groups of churches, you know, maybe there's not enough trust. Maybe there's, I don't know, skepticism, but I know you well, and if you don't believe the story, just repent and believe it anyway. Uh, one of the reasons I don't tell the story very often is it, it, it just smacks of, uh, I don't know, uh, self-grandeur or something like that. And believe me, that's, that's not why I'm telling you the story. It's, uh, it's, it's funny at, at conferences, things like that, sometimes during the coffee break. Uh, by the way, how many of you know you will not have revival unless you have good coffee? It's just, you know, in heaven all the baristas are going to either be Brazilian or Italian, one or the other, you know. No messing around with Nescafe. If you're addicted to Nescafe, you get kind of a smaller field up there or something, I don't know. But anyway, that's just written in the book of Mark. <laughs> but... It's great when my, my wife is with me at conferences because she shatters all these, uh, some people get weird out, oh, the prophet of God. You know, so, someone walked up to my wife one time at a conference and said, what's it like being married to a prophet? Is your husband always fasting and praying? My wife had to bite her hand to keep from laughing. So she would be the first to say, I'm just a normal person that loves Jesus. But anyway, I, I tell you all that to tell you this story, uh, and this story I'm telling you, it's documented. It's actually uh, the church that it took place in. They've produced three or four little uh, documentary books with dozens and dozens of miracles of lives being restored, physical miracles happening, marriages being restored, things like that. But we were doing a conference, and it was, I think, the uh, second night of the conference, 
And a lady came who had not been there the first night, and uh, I want to give you her backdrop. She'd been saved about four or five years. For over 15 years, she'd been a hardcore drug addict, just completely gone in the life. And uh, about 15, 10 years before this night, uh, she tripped going down some stairs, really mangled her lower right leg, actually broke it. But she was afraid to go to the hospital because they would find out she was drugged up, you know, call the police and try to get in rehab, which she didn't want. So she just took a few more drugs and she called some of her druggy friends and she got them to get some plaster of Paris. And when she was really drugged out, they pulled on her leg to straighten the bones out and they set a cast. Well, believe it or not, they did not set the cast properly. And when they took the cast off, about three months later, the bones had set incorrectly. And she had walked with a, a pretty severe limp with her, her lower right foot and uh, leg for all these years and lived with quite a bit of pain. And so she uh, came to second night of the conference. She had never heard me speak before. She didn't know who I was. But before the meeting began, she sees me up with a group of the pastors of the churches talking. And without even knowing who I was, the Lord said to her, I want you to go up and touch that guy. I was reminded of the story when John talked about the lady who snuck through the crowd and touched the heads, the edge of Jesus' garment. I'm not comparing myself to Jesus, but I want to make the point to you the reality of what Jesus said, that if you believe I'm in the Father, the Father's in me, the works that I do, you shall do also. Turn to the person next to you and say, he's talking about me. So, you might say to them, he's not talking about you, he's only talking about me. But anyway, so the Lord said, I want you to go up and touch that guy. She said, Lord, I can't do that, that'd be weird, you know. And the Lord said, I want you to go up and touch him. She said, I, I can't do that. So, you know, she sits down, and we have our meeting. We have the worship, the sermon. And we're, that night, we did a fire tunnel. If you're not familiar with the fire tunnels, we're a group of people. You know, the whole church lines up, passes uh, through a, a tunnel of leaders praying, and they pray for everybody. And, you know, Lord, fill them with your fire. It's not a bad thing to do. Maybe we should do it tonight. But, but anyway, so... She's doing this, and it, it, you know, there's a, I don't know, good crowd there. And I'm on the end of the line. There's people passing through. I'm kind of facing the stage. I'm on that side of the tunnel, and uh, I, I feel a touch on my elbow. And I turn around and look, and there's a woman that looks really embarrassed, kind of half jogging away from me, looking over her shoulder at me. And I thought, well, you know, it's a charismatic church. They're just weird, you know. So, you know, it just goes with the territory. <laughs> but uh, uh, this is what happened, uh, and this is documented, by the way. By the time she got back to her seat, her limp was 100% gone. All the pain was gone. Before she had gotten addicted to drugs, you know, in her teens, her favorite thing in life had been going up in the hills in uh, California and wherever she lived and going hiking. She used to do that with her dad and did as a young woman, but she had not been able to go hiking or go for long walks in all these years since her foot and ankle being messed up. But she went up the next morning and just hiked and hiked and hiked. And as I said, this is documented. And Again, I don't tell this, this story very often. It depends on the, the group I'm with because people think, oh, you're saying you're no. 
I'm not saying I'm, I'm Jesus at all or anything you know, close to that in maturity. But the point is, there's a reality. There's always a deep reality to the words of God. But this word, Jesus is saying, it's for a now people. The works that I do, you shall do also. And so if you and I are filled with the Holy Spirit and walking with God in the ways of God, there are no limitations to what God can't do through us. Are you still alive? Okay. So that's not really the message. That was just the warm-up. The, the actual message should take about three and a half hours, but we'll get you out of here in time to get some pizza or I don't know, uh, whatever. So uh, turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 8. I want to try to briefly give you a message that I want to quantify or qualify the difference between immature Christianity and mature Christianity. And there's a lot you could say about that. You look at John 3.16, and it says about God the Father that he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever should believe in him should not die but have eternal life. What that means is because of Jesus, if we belong to him, the Father forgives us of all of our iniquities. So there's two essential truths we know about God the Father. One, he's a giver, and two, he's a forgiver. And I think very simply, one of the ways we can measure maturity in our lives is, are we givers, or are we holding tight to what we've got? Turn to the person next to you and say, he's talking about you. Or... Do we freely, freely give as we freely, freely receive? But secondly, are we quick to forgive? You know, it says in Hebrews to avoid the bitter root of judgment by which so many are defiled. Neurologists tell us that possibly 80 to 85 percent of all people in hospitals, aside from people there from accidents and things like that, are there because of neurological, psychosomatic reasons for years and years of toxic thinking, hanging on to anger, bitterness, anxiety, and whatnot. And unforgiveness will poison your life, and it will poison relationships, and it can even cause major problems for churches. This is why so many churches you know, sometimes go through church splits and all sorts of things. It's because we've left no room for the love of God that... Uh, it calls us to be forgivers and to give grace to one another and mercy to one another. But I want to talk about a different aspect of Christian maturity, and that is the difference between being pursued by God or pursuing God. And in Acts chapter 8, it says in verse 26, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, one of the apostles, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And she had come to Jerusalem to worship. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning. Seated in his chariot, he was reading from the prophet Isaiah, where we just heard some words out of Isaiah 6 tonight, didn't we? And the Spirit of the Lord said to Philip, Go and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him. He ran. He aggressively went after him. 
And he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? He invited Philip to come up and sit with them. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led like a, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent so he opens not his mouth in his humiliation justice was denied him who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth and the eunuch said to Philip about whom I ask you does the prophet say this about himself or somebody else And Philip began to open his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he began to give the good news of Jesus. Now, this eunuch, this Ethiopian royal official, he ended up then and there giving his life to the Lord Jesus. In fact, there was a pool of a lake or a pond or something, and Philip actually baptized him on the spot. But the point is, he was pursued by God. And you say, well, it was a man. But 99% of the time when God speaks to us, it's not just, you know, through the angels or a glory cloud coming down or a prophetic vision or dream, but it's through one another. We are the body of Christ, and quite often we're the hand of blessing or we're the word of the Lord, or we're not the word, but we share the words of the Lord and encouragement with one another. But the point is that this Ethiopian man, he was pursued by God. When we first come to the Lord Jesus, it's because God has had mercy upon us. He's broken through our defenses. He's broken past our uh, unbelief and all that. And whether it's the preaching of the gospel or God visiting you in the middle of the night in a dream or whatever, he awakens you to the reality of Christ Jesus. And just like our, our infants and our toddlers, you know, we care for them, we watch them so carefully, hold them by the hand. But as they grow, we don't, um, well, some of us have children that still need to be held by the hand, don't they? But uh, as they grow, we expect them to learn to stand on their own feet. We also related the other day, I think it was yesterday, um, uh, when Moses and the Hebrew people had come out of Egypt, out of slavery, and they're standing before the Red Sea, but they end up trapped because Pharaoh and his army is coming to destroy them, that uh, Moses, or God, rebuked Moses, and he said, Stand and speak. Be firm in your faith. And so, as we grow up in the Lord, it's not just a matter of God continuing to speak to us, visit us, but we are also called to be pursuers of God, to run hard after God. And we see a number of examples of that in the Bible. We see like Abraham in Genesis 18, when the form of the Lord was the Lord was passing by in the form of the three men, he saw the Lord. He says he ran after the Lord. And so often I've seen it in the life of churches, I've seen the life of individuals, there'll be that sense at different seasons of the Lord passing by, but yet we fail to enter into what God has for us because we don't pursue the Lord. I have experienced so many churches over the last uh, several decades in different parts of the earth that have had tremendous uh, conferences, outpoints of the Holy Spirit that have lasted a week or two, but yet they kind of said, oh, those were good meetings. Oh, yeah, that was a great high-water mark. But what they don't realize 
is God was not doing what he was doing just to give them a set of good meetings or to give a higher water mark. He was giving an invitation to respond to him. In uh, Many of you know that in the church I was based at in Toronto, Canada, in, uh, we had moved there in, in May of 92, and actually just a week after I arrived, we were doing a conference. Uh, my wife and two kids at the time had moved from uh, San Diego, California to Toronto. You talk about a move of faith, my word. They have this stuff called snow in Toronto. It's just it's alien to me. But anyway, uh, the first week there, I had an open vision of Niagara Falls, uh, which is actually about an hour and a half away from Toronto, coming from heaven over the Church of Toronto. And uh, the Lord said, I'm going to pour out my spirit in Toronto in a way that's never happened before. It's going to bring revival. It's going to go from here to the nations. And it will happen in a year, year and a half. And our church took that word very seriously. We had that prophecy transcribed. It was about four pages. Our church prayed into it. I, the, I preached on it several times in our church as well as a couple other churches in Toronto. And sure enough, in January, the third week of January, 1994, we began to have this massive outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And they estimate conservatively that over the next seven years, we had between four and five million people visit our church. Leaders came from the body of Christ all over the globe and had incredible encounters with God. Now, that's remarkable, but there's a point of why I'm telling you this story. Over the last 30 years or so, you would not believe how many leaders from Australia to England to Germany to all over the place I've talked to that were in ministry at that time said, well, it's interesting, around the same time, we had outpourings of the Holy Spirit too, but we never thought, you know, God would want to keep doing something. And see, I think God gives us invitations, but the question is, how hungry are we? How desperate are we? Are we just kind of like infants just waiting to be spoon-fed, or like Abraham, are we getting up and running after the presence of God. Are you still alive? So what does that look like? Well, I'm glad you asked. Turn with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 3 in the Old Testament. If you can find an Exodus in the New Testament, you're, you're working on a higher level of revelation than most of us. But Exodus chapter 3, Moses, as a young man growing up, kind of adopted into Pharaoh's household, even though he was a Hebrew, Pharaoh did not know that, but uh, he was, as Spielberg called him, the prince of Egypt, you know. He was living in royalty, riches, wealth, and all of that. But at the same time, he had a sense of destiny. He had a sense of calling. He was beginning to discern a sense of purpose from God to set the Hebrew people free from slavery to the Egyptians. And he tried to do something on his own account, and you know the story, he ended up killing an Egyptian guard, and he ended up running for his life. And he lived the next 40 years in total obscurity among a small Bedouin tribe out in the middle of nowhere. But at the same time, he knew the reality of Yahweh. He knew the reality of God Almighty. And for 40 years, he was taking care of his Jethro, his father-in-law's sheep, and just living out there. And it says in verse 1 of Exodus 3, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. 
the Mount Horeb is also at different times in the Old Testament referred to as Mount Sinai. Most theologians agree it's the same mountain. It's on Mount Sinai that Moses received the law from where he had incredible life-changing encounters with God. I want you to hang on to that thought for a few moments. But it says in verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. He didn't just go around a rock. He ascended, so to speak, the hill of the Lord. He left the sheep behind. And there are certain times, it could be a day, it could be a week, it could be a season in your life, I'm not saying you're supposed to quit your job or be irresponsible with family and commitments, things like that. But there comes a point when God is passing by and he's wanting to give you certain invitations. It's not just so we can say we had a cool experience at church when so-and-so laid hands on us. But we realize the very works that Jesus did, he wants us to do also. About five of you are excited. (laughs) So Moses turned aside. He left the sheep, and he went up the mountain. And it says God called him out of the bush, this burning bush that was not consumed. It's interesting. It says in Hebrews, our God is a consuming fire. He wants to burn up all the attitudes and bad practices and the value system of this world so the things of Christ might be established in us. He is a consuming fire. His fire is always symbolic, biblically, of his glory and his holiness. And so when he turned aside, God called him and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And he said to him, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And God said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And basically... This was a place of commissioning for Moses. It was a place of anointing. It was a place of sending out. It was at this point in time that he began to enter into his destiny because he turned aside to gaze upon the glory of the Lord. But let me make one more comment out of this. The Lord said, you're standing on holy ground. I believe in the contemporary church we have a very marginalized, a very limited understanding of the holiness of God. We think about the holiness of God, immediately we think about a list of do's and a list of don'ts. Well, I can do this, but I can't do that anymore. That is just such a a shallow perspective of the holiness of God. The holiness of God, I believe, means to embrace three things. First of all, to embrace the person of Christ because he is our holiness. He is our righteousness in the eyes of God. As Paul said, I don't want to be found with the righteousness derived from the law or my performance, but I want to be found with the righteousness found in Christ Jesus. 
So it means to embrace the person of Christ. But secondly, it does mean to embrace the ways of Christ. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. There's a message there that needs to be preached, but we don't have time for that. But thirdly, to love the Lord, uh, holiness means to embrace the specific will of God for your life. How many of you have heard of the great evangelist out of Germany, Reinhold Bonnke? You know, he just, he led literally millions of people to the Lord, primarily in Africa. When Reinhold Bonnke received his call, he was a very successful businessman, very comfortable, easy lifestyle in Germany. And the Lord spoke to him and said, I want you to leave everything behind. I'm calling you to give your life to evangelism in Africa. And he said, well, Lord, can I pray about this? (laughs) And the Lord said, yeah, you can pray about it. But in his testimony, he said, then I have a thought. And he said, Lord, am I the first person that you've chosen with this particular call at this specific time to do this? And he said, no, you're not the first person. Which meant the first person the Lord had spoke to had not responded. And he said, Lord, am I the second person? And the Lord said, no, you're not the second person, meaning two people had turned the Lord down. He said, okay, Lord, I'm on it. And he gave his life to evangelism in in Africa, and as a result, millions and millions of people ended up getting saved. I can remember on one of my trips to uh, Nigeria way back when, in the late 80s, being in the, uh, uh, I'd flown into uh, Lagos and was traveling to Aba, Nigeria. Great name for a city, by the way. But we were going to do some conferences there. I can remember walking around the airport, as you do after a long flight. You're semi-brain dead. And uh, you're just trying to kill time till you board your plane. And wandering into the bookstore there, and the bookstore also sold, uh, back in those days, what were they, uh, before DVDs, uh, cassettes? and seeing cassettes for sale there. And there in the Lagos airport, they sold cassettes, video cassettes, of Reinhold Bonnke, of his crusades, preaching. That's If you really end up making an impact on your nation, they'll be selling your, na- your messages in the airports. <laughs> That's making an impact. But when he realized there had been two people before him that had turned the Lord down, he said no. And see... Yes, holiness does involve making the right decisions, saying no to temptation, yes to acts of service, sacrifice, and righteousness. It means to embrace Christ, but it also means saying, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. And sometimes we feel so much pressure because of the value system of this world to go in different directions. I shared, I think it was this morning, that my mother got angry at me when I was about 27, 28, newly married, and I was doing ministry in my home church, emerging as an elder and a preacher. But uh, the Lord, my wife and I alone, been married a year, year and a half, called us to quit the family seafood business, uh, which was a fairly large company. It was going to have a great financial future there. 
when he called my wife, my, took my wife and I to quit and be available to start traveling internationally. My wife was angry. My uncle, who was managing the business at that point, did not understand it. And as I look back over the last 41 years now, there have been some seasons, in fact, where money has been very, very tight. But yet, even in those lean seasons, we've always seen God pay the bills. We've also had seasons when there's been plenty of cash. You know, the Apostle Paul said, I've learned to be content when there's a little or a lot. I don't know about you, but personally, I find it easier to be content when there's a lot. Hallelujah. But (laughs) my point is that through the lean times, through the abundant times, my wife and I have just experienced the most amazing faithfulness of God. We've experienced blessing after blessing in ways that it would just take too long to describe the variety of them, but in ways I never would have come into if we had not said yes. And see, you have a call upon you. It may not be my call. It may not be Reinhold Bonnke's call. But you have a call upon you because God has a sphere of influence set aside for you according to the unique DNA that he comprises, the unique personality he's given you, that only you can fulfill. And so, yes, you may be on a trajectory right now, maybe graduating or a career change or promotion or this or that, but yet the question is always, as Jesus prayed, Father, not my will, but your will be done. But Moses, he made the decision. He didn't just gaze upon the fire of God and say, wow, I can't wait till Thursday night's home group. I'm going to tell everybody about this vision of the glory I had. No. He went up the mountain and came into the presence of God. He experienced the holiness of God, the fire of God. And he said, yes, Lord. And the rest is history. If you would uh, turn your Bibles now to Luke chapter 24. In Psalm 110, verse 3, it reads a little bit different in different translations, but you can understand it this way. It says in some translations, Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, O Lord. That sounds a little bit enigmatic, but what it means is when God is moving, when God is doing a fresh thing, the Word does not have to be preached that revival is coming. Because as the people of God, we may not understand the particulars, We may not understand what it's going to look like or smell like, but being the people of God, having the Spirit of God within us, there's a stirring within each one of us. We're aware something's coming. We're aware God's up to something. And that stirring is what we're called to respond to. And how we respond to that stirring is like Moses taking the time to seek the face of God. But it can look different ways at different seasons. I've been all over the UK. I've been in a lot of cities. I, I love being in those cities. I've been in some cities I never want to go back to. <laughs> but I remember, how many of you have ever been to Barnstable? You ever been to Barnstable? It's way out in the middle of somewhere on the West Coast. Is that right? Yeah, it's kind of near there. Okay, good. One person is giving the thumbs up. It's so gratifying to have one person in church service give you the thumbs up. So hallelujah. So... <clears throat> Years ago, I was there, 
And I didn't remember this at all. So there's Barstable, but also there's Chorleywood. Something, who knows where Chorleywood is? Yeah, it's, it's a rather affluent community, uh, about an hour north of London. It's kind of a bedroom community for people with money. If you don't have money, don't go, you know. But anyway, <laughs> there is a, a well-known Anglican church there. Um, uh, St. Andrews, Chorleywood, St. Andrews, thank you. You'd never, you'd never guess I've been there over ten times <laughs> ministering. But uh, I, I did a lot of conferences there over the years, first with David Pitches, who was a renowned uh, bishop in the Anglican Church, and then with the, uh, the, uh, the guy who took his place, Mark Stibbe. In fact, Mark Stibbe and I co-wrote a book on healing together, uh, but uh, did a lot of conferences there, had a lot of miracles. Well, during the times I went there, I haven't been there in about 10 years now, but they hired a new associate pastor, and this guy and his wife had two or three kids, very sharp couple, very gracious couple, very anointed. There were a couple that was really on it. I want to tell you why the ch- one of the reasons why the church hired him. They were interviewing him because they needed a new associate pastor. And they're saying, well, tell us about the call of God upon your life. And he said, well, six years ago, I was living in Barnstable at the time, but I was also commuting to London I was going to law school, and I was going to graduate at the end of that semester, and my whole life was focused on being what you call, in the UK, a barrister. We don't have barristers in the States, we just have lawyers. And he said, my whole life was planned out. He said, I had never been in a meeting where people prophesied or laid hands on people, but... He said, this guy named Mark DuPont was doing a meeting with a bunch of churches in Barnstable, and some friends of mine dragged me to the meeting. And in the middle of a meeting, he stopped his message, and he pointed at me and said, you, what's your name? And he stood, his name said, stand up. And I said, there is a call of God upon your life to preach the gospel and pastor the body of Christ. He said, you can sit down now. So I sat down. And he said, I had never experienced that or seen anything like it. They didn't do that in my church. So he said, after the meeting, I and the four friends who had dragged me to that meeting were sitting in the pub, as you do in the UK after a good church service. (laughs) You talk about cultural differences. The first time way back in the late 80s that I did a conference here in the UK, we did a leaders meeting on the Saturday afternoon, the pastor's house, and about 15 pastors from different churches there. I shared with them, prayed for them, wrapping things up, and the hosting pastor says, right, boys, should we pop down to the pub for a pint? I thought I was choking. In America, after church, we do not pop down to the pub for a pint. And so anyway, that's just a unique cultural differences. We drink privately there. No, I'm just messing with you. <laughs> so he, this guy goes to the pub after the meeting, sitting around drinking some pints with his friends, and he says, what in the world was that about? And they said, well, that was the Holy Spirit speaking through the speaker to give you a prophetic word about a possible, probable call of God upon your life. 
And, you know, uh, the Apostle Paul said, weigh prophetic words. So you're supposed to take that and pray into it. And he said, well, that doesn't fit at all with my plans. I'm about to graduate. I'm going to be a barrister. I spent a lot of money on law school. And he said, well, you know, if it's a word of God, if you pray about it, you'll have a conviction. You'll have a peace about it. He wasn't even sure he wanted to pray about it. But he did. He prayed about it. And he did get his law degree, but then he turned around and he went to Bible school for two years. He never became a lawyer. And he is just an amazing pastor. He worked with that church for a number of years, and then he and his family moved to New York. He took over as senior pastor of a church there, and I think he's, he's still in New York. But you see, so to speak, he turned aside to gaze upon the burning bush. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that necessarily you are going to have a dramatic change in your job, your career, but there is a, so to speak, a warming of the Holy Spirit that's going to church today. There is an awakening. There's a stirring. With my home church in Toronto, and we lived there from 92 to 98, the church that we were hosting that outpouring, I still go back to that church. In fact, I was just there about a month ago. But about 1998-99, we were averaging six nights a week, 1,000 to 1,500 people a night visiting our church, coming from all over the globe. The hotels in Toronto, they loved us, you know. In fact, in 1994, the city of Toronto recognized our church as the number one tourist attraction in Toronto that year. So it, it, it's good for the city, you know. But anyway... <laughs> Uh, having a thousand, eight hundred, a thousand, fifteen hundred people every night at your, your church six nights a week, it sounds glorious. It is just a lot of work. And so almost every one of those eight hundred, thousand, fifteen hundred people would want prayer. And we had a big open space, an area we ended up taking over this large warehouse, uh, uh that actually had been a conference center that could seat five thousand. We had big area for ministry, and we had these lines where we'd have people stand so it wouldn't be too close to one another. And we would have to pray for 1,000, 1,500 people every night. But we weren't a huge, huge church at that point. But we ended up with a prayer ministry team of over 300 people. But the reason I tell you that is most of those 300 people, at least 200 of them, actually were members of other churches. Some of them attended Pentecostal churches, Baptist churches, Anglican churches, but they were so stirred in their hearts by what God is doing in our church, they came and went through our four-week-long ministry training time. They learned how to lay hands on people and not get weird and goofy and things like that, pray for the sick, prophesy. They went through that, and on average, they would be there one night a week, and many of them did that for five or six years, you know, on average. Why would people come from another church to serve in your church once a week? It's because there was this stirring in their hearts. In the day of your power, your people will volunteer freely. The other thing about revival, it cost a whole lot of money. <laughs> and when we went from the, the meeting place we were at that could hold about 250 to this large warehouse that could hold about 5000 it was an expensive move, but what we saw was people being touched by God, just giving and giving and giving 
because they were stirred in their hearts. When God is moving, you don't have to have somebody preach to you, revival is coming. It maybe encourages you to pray, but you already know in your heart God is doing something. It could be revival on a personal level. It could be on a church level, citywide level, or a nationwide level. But anyway, you're probably wondering at this point why you turn to Luke 24. Glad you asked. So, this is after the resurrection of Jesus. The disciples know Jesus is not in the tomb, but they're not quite sure, sure where he's at or what he's doing. And it says that uh, on the same day that Peter ran to the tomb and saw the tomb was empty, it says in verse 13, that very day two of them, two of the disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened, the arrest, the torture, the crucifixion of Jesus, now the empty tomb. And it says in verse 15, while they were talking, discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. This is important to to understand. It's a key point of this story. And actually, it's one of three stories that happened with people after the resurrection who knew Jesus very well, who saw him after the resurrection, but did not recognize him. Mary Magdalene goes running to the tomb. The tomb is empty. And she turned and saw a man that it says she supposed he was the gardener. And she said, do you know where they've taken my master? And the gardener said, Mary. And all of a sudden she realized it was Jesus. In John, the last chapter, it talks about Peter and six of the other disciples. John, John, Peter, and five of the disciples, they went fishing all night. And they hadn't caught any fish, and they're coming in. They're probably about 50 yards out from the shore coming in. And Jesus is standing there, but they do not recognize him. And he says, children, have you caught any fish? And they said, no. He said, well, just throw the net out on the other side of the boat. And the net was filled to the point of bursting. And John turns to Peter and said, it's Jesus. Peter jumped in the water and swam to Jesus. So this raises an important theological question. How could it be that Peter and John, the other disciples, how could it be Mary Magdalene, and how could it be these two disciples here on the road to Emmaus are seeing Jesus but not recognizing Jesus? It's very simple. With the resurrection of Jesus, the people of God had transcended from the age of the law and outward performance to the age of the Spirit. You and I, we very seldom with these eyes or with our logical minds, hopefully your mind is logical, but anyway, we seldom understand or fully grasp what God is doing in certain situations. We can no longer see Jesus with these eyes, but how we do perceive Jesus is with the eyes of our heart. As Paul prayed for the saints in Ephesus, may the eyes of your heart be enlightened. And this is why Jesus said, let those of ears to hear hear what the Spirit is saying. And so if we're living by a natural perspective, if we're leaning to our own understanding, We're going to miss what God is doing. You know, 
again, to refer to my church in Toronto that had that massive outpouring of the Holy Spirit, you know, we weren't a huge church. When the Spirit really hit us in that third week in January 1994, we were maybe about 200 people at the most. And all of a sudden, we've got the whole world, so to speak, coming to our church. And if you'd have looked at our church even a month before, and somebody has said to you, this church is going to have an experience and a historical, amazing outpouring of the Holy Spirit in just a month time, you'd be sitting in the meeting saying, gosh, I'm just not seeing it. There wasn't that much to see that spoke of revival even a few weeks before. I mean, it was a good church. There were good things happened, a few people being saved, healed, a few broken lives. I mean, coming back together, it was good as far as church goes. But as far as historical revival, nah, just not seen it. And it can be that way in your situation, your career, your opportunities, what God has for you. But Proverbs 3, 5 says, lean not to your own understanding. Trust the Lord with all of your heart. And so... This is one of those three stories. They're seeing Jesus, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And Jesus said, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? I wonder sometimes if Jesus looks and says, what in the world are you guys on about? What are you talking about? Not you, but the church meeting down the road. And then one of them named Cleopas, answered him and said, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there these days? And Jesus said, What things? It's like you're whinging, you're complaining, you're griping about all the problems in your life. And the father says, Well, tell me about it, you know. And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty indeed and word for God and all the people, how the chief priests and rulers delivered them up, we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since all these things happened, and some of the women in our company say the tomb is empty. But Jesus responded to them in verse 25 and said, O oh, foolish ones, this is the same Jesus who taught, Do not call anyone a fool, or else you're guilty of hellfire. But he said, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And as they drew near to the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us for it is towards evening. The day is now far spent. So he went in with them. They either went into a house that offered hospitality or perhaps an inn. And it says in verse 30, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. But this is what I want to draw your attention to. Verse 32. They then said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and he opened to us the scriptures. That those seasons, those days, sometimes even maybe it's just a few moments, those times when, so to speak, your heart is burning within you, 
is because God is wanting to draw you in. He has things to say to you, things to impart to you. And we dare not say, oh, I had this cool experience with the Holy Spirit a couple of months ago or whatever. But it's an invitation to run hard after God. It's an invitation to pursue Him. And so we understand that God pursues us. But we are also, as we grow in the Lord, we're called to pursue Him. Are you excited? Let's not be slow of heart or the danger is... Yes, God will always take care of us. He'll always love us. He'll provide us because we're his children. But that doesn't mean we're walking in the fullness of his will for us. That's what Reinhold Bonnke discerned. I'll close with a story. I probably have told you this here before, but uh, I was doing uh, some meetings. I think I was in a church in Ohio. And... uh, uh, in, in the ministry time, the Lord gave me a very, very distinct word. And I said, there's a woman here between 45 and 50. You've suffered severe asthma all of your life. When you were a child, you could not play sports or do run, get involved in athletics because you had such bad asthma. And when you were about 25, your asthma actually got a lot worse. And ever since then, at least once a month, you have to go to the urgent care center and you know, hook you up with a breathing machine to coat your lungs. And I said, where is that woman? The Lord wants to heal you. Nobody came forward. Uh, well, that's pretty weird. It felt like I was hearing it with great detail, you know. So I went on and prayed for other people, other things. About 10 minutes later, the Lord said, give it again. So I gave it again. Nobody came forward. thought, wow, I literally must be under anointing of deception here, you know. But about 10 minutes later, praying for other people, the Lord said, give the word again. The third time, finally a woman comes forward, said it's me, and we prayed for her. She sent in a testimony to the website about three or four months later, and this is what she said. When I first heard the guy say, there's a woman here between 45 and 50, severe asthma of your life, couldn't run and play sports as kids as a child, and when she was 25, got worse, has to go once a month to the urgent care. I said to myself, That's amazing. There's somebody else here just like me. (laughs) The second time, she thought, well, maybe that word might have been for me, but if it was, I'll bet God's angry at me because I did not go forward. I'm not going up there now. But finally I said a third time, she said, well, if God's angry at me, he's really going to be angry at me if I don't have now. She went up and she got 100% healed. She testified four months later that all this asthma she'd had all of her life. She even testified that in her extended family, uh, she could almost never go to family gatherings because a lot of people in her extended family, they smoked like chimneys. She couldn't be in the house with them. It would cause her an outbreak of asthma. But about a, just a few weeks after that time, she went to a family gathering and, you know, um, everybody's smoking and it, it didn't bother her a bit. So let's not be slow on the uptake. When our hearts are burning within us, when we sense that drawing, and again, as I've shared at all the meetings, a life verse for everybody 
is 1 Corinthians 2.9. Everybody ought to have that underlined in your Bible. And I realize there's some of you that don't believe in underlining things in your Bible. You say every verse is important. Why should we just choose one of them? Well, that's cool. But reach across and underline it in somebody else's Bible because it deserves to be underlined. God, Ryan, could you come back up? God has more for you than your eyes have seen, more than your ears have heard, more than you can begin to understand. So if God has more for you than you can understand, how in the world are you to bridge the gap between where you're at now and what God wants to do in the coming season or seasons? It's very simple. Have ears to hear and eyes to see. And when you sense the Lord speaking to you, drawing you out, be like Abraham that got up and ran after the presence of the Lord. Be like those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Seek the Lord. They detained the presence of the Lord. In fact, they had a meal with them. They did what I call, they detained and entertained the presence of the Lord. Spend a little bit more time than normal hanging out with the Lord. Part of that might involve meetings like this and getting prayer and whatnot. But we're coming into season, and I realize there's probably some visitors here from other churches, so just uh, you can buy the message for 19.95 and take it to your pastor. Now I'm just messing with you. But uh, take the word for yourself, regardless of whether you go to another church or not. But uh, for you as a church, you know, and you heard some of the prophetic words and some of the inspired you know, scriptures that were shared with you, that in the king of Uzziah's death, you know, uh, all over the world, we've just gone through, um, so to speak, a period of death the last three years, haven't we? There's such a fear factor of COVID and dying and everything going on. And you know the, the name COVID, the word COVID, it means crown. It's the false crown, the crown of death. But uh, in the year of King Uzziah's death, Isaiah said he was taken up before the glory of the Lord. So... Uh, are you up to, can you do it without the band leading us and open the eyes of my heart? Good, he's on it. Let's stand, and then we're going to pray for a few things. Well, he is getting adjusted there. I'll just mention, uh, we do have a few more of my books and CDs in the room across the road there. One of them I would recommend is called Miracles Today. It's a two-CD set, and the focus is understanding God's creative power and the kingdom of God, realizing God's desire for us to believe and to receive the miraculous, but also experiencing God's desire to use all of us. It's not just the speakers, it's not just the preachers, but God wants to use all of us. His Spirit is upon all of us to set the captives free and heal the broken heart. So that is a lot of good practical training about how God can use all of us to move in the miraculous. But I don't think we have any of the books left, but we do have some of the CDs. And um, this is probably the last batch because CDs have now become a little bit archaic, haven't they? But we have a three-CD set here on uh, breakthrough in times of breakdown. We took, talk about kingdom living is in the giving, transform people, transform, and supernatural peace in times of adversity. So all that stuff is there. Let's, uh, let's worship.